I'm Q. This is Bird Road. Dave is off today. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Like always, visit birdroadpodcast.com. Stay updated on the show. Even though there's not a lot going on right now, no live shows, unfortunately. And follow us on Twitter at Bird Road Podcast. We're in paralysis right now. Really across the whole world. COVID-19 is putting a lot of urgent issues on the back burner, but it doesn't mean that they're going away. In 80 years, there's a really good chance that Miami won't be here and it won't be because of a pandemic, probably, hopefully. It, it probably won't be because of how crooked the cops are here. It'll be because of the CO2 that we released into the atmosphere that's trapped enough heat that has uh, resulted in the oceans rising up and swallowing huge chunks of the region. My guest today is a reporter at the South Florida Sun Sentinel and an author of the new book, Disposable City, an examination of Miami's future on the shores of climate catastrophe. It's available on Amazon and also in less evil book retailers everywhere. Uh, He's joining us to talk about the book and the dangers of sort of relegating this existential threat from the front pages to the back pages. Mario Arisa, welcome to Bird Road. Hey man, it's my pleasure to be here, David. So the book is great. I got it last week. I have to confess, like I said before we started recording, I'm only about halfway through it, but um, I did okay. re- I did read ahead <laughs> a little bit to um, you know to 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 to, to get a better idea. Uh, I'm already pretty terrified. Uh, I was already terrified beforehand, but this this also helped. But um, anyway, I wanted to say congratulations. I think this is your first book, right? Yes, it is. It is my first book. Thank you. I, I really do appreciate it. Um, I'm I'm just super happy with the reception that it's getting and the conversations that it's starting. Um, it's very much a book that was designed to take people from zero to 100 on what's going to happen here as fast as possible and to sort of catalyze um, an honest and thorough evaluation of just how vulnerable this city is. Uh, and, and it seems like people are picking up what I was putting down so <laughs> yeah it's it's been a great um it's been great to see the cover getting shared around on social media it's a, a great cover really well designed and without like this making creating the sign of like the sound of flipping through a bunch of pages here you want to tell me about really quick the, the cover art great job Pete Garceau uh my gosh I mean he, he really just kind of nailed the the sort of uh the pinks and the blues of the sky here when the Saharan dust is in the air in the evening. And also it's just like, it's one of these engaging covers where like, if you look hard enough, you realize the waves are kind of crashing over Miami beach as if it were a hurricane and kind of eating at the hotels. And, and you know, it's, it says crisis, but it says crisis in as Miami as a way as you could imagine. And so like, I, I think, like part of uh, the the sort of uh, metaphorical strength between the book and the cover, right? Like what what why they fit together really well. I I would say is because like this is a book that tries to tell the story of what's going on here in as much style and with as much sort of like local flavor as possible. You know, because I I am from here and and I wanted to do this place as much justice as I could. So you know, like I go python hunting. Uh, but I also take a kayak up the Miami River and like, you know, sniff the water befouled by all those septic tanks that aren't functioning right now. So we're going to jump into the contents of the book. But first, I wanted to kind of get your your, your feedback on um, how has it been trying to get people to pay attention to this issue, to the issue of, of climate change and the effects on, on Florida during this time? Like it must have been it must be really challenging to try to grab people's focus. And I'm wondering how you're doing that. That's a great question. Um, so, so first of all, like you know, the book is coming out right as Miami is in the barrel 
at the center of of the pandemic, right? Like it's between us and Brownsville, uh, Texas right now for the most hospitalizations in the country, I think. Please check me on that statistic. Um, and so, so on one sense, like, wow, I was really afraid to have a book coming out when there was obviously such an acute shock to our city. But because the book deals with a kind of sort of pervading doom that can suffuse everything that you do here if you let it, and because it sort of strikes at a much, uh, at, at, a, at a different note of anxiety that we all feel living here, I, it has managed to sort of cut through surprisingly well. Yeah. Um, and, and I think at a certain point, it's because if you look at the two crises, they're not that distinct. Right. If you look at the fragility that our society has displayed in responding to the COVID nineteen outbreak, um, you know the lack of public health infrastructure, the reliance on political communication over scientific and political ideology over scientific communication, and and the general inability of the political classes of this country to generate a coordinated response due to a lack of leadership at the federal level. Right. Like. If I hadn't been talking about COVID nineteen, I'd be talking about the climate crisis right there. Right, and and so so the fact that we're going through this right now and it's affecting us in many of the same ways that the the climate crisis would, perhaps not as acutely, right? But it's hitting our tourism economy. It's affecting our public health infrastructure. Um, you know, I I think in some ways publishing the book now has benefited from the sense that, oh, we as a society at the moment aren't really doing the best that we could. We're not really thriving. So early in the book, you you talk about the concept that I found really interesting and I've had a hard time in my life trying to put uh, language to it. And it, it, I never heard it really put this um, succinctly and that is positive feedback loops about how a lot of our more sort of orthodox or accepted temperature change and sea level rise projections they're like contained within these these theoretical chambers but that the reality there's these knock-on effects that are going to sort of you know exacerbate them and 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 create these positive feedback loops um it means that we can sort of predict things we can't predict how much worse things are going to be but we can predict that they're going to be worse right do i I generally have that right yeah you got that right you got that totally right um so so for people who don't walk around in their head thinking about positive and negative feedback loops which are two concepts from uh biology which which are really useful for understanding how complex systems work and by the way we should note that like complex systems and telling stories about complex systems is the challenge of reporting on covid and the challenge of reporting on on climate change um but but complex systems have uh feedback loops right and it's it's where a series and this is going to sound abstract but it's where a series of inputs creates a, a generally predetermined output and so so for instance if you put in a bag a bunch of fruit Right. Say you got a bunch of mangoes from the tree and they're super green, right? But you got them because you think a hurricane's coming and, and, and you want to eat them during the time where you're locked in your house. And you put one ripe mango in with all the rest of the green mangoes in your brown paper bag. The ethylene gas let out by that one ripe, beautiful, succulent mango is going to cause a positive feedback loop and ripen all of the other mangoes. And they're going to start releasing more ethylene gas and ripening faster and faster and faster until you have a bunch of rotten mangoes because you didn't get around to eating them because you were too worried about the hurricane that was going on outside of your door, right? That's a positive feedback loop. 
Um, and you can think of a lot of the things that are going to get worse about climate change as positive feedback loops. So CO2 warming the planet is a positive feedback loop on a medium to short time scale, right? The more CO2 you pump in, the hotter stuff gets, right? And the faster the greenhouse effect goes into effect and the faster the temperature spikes, right? Because you're trapping more and more gases. Um, but there are also other positive feedback loops that we don't necessarily think of when we're talking about climate change, uh, like rain, right? Yeah. Everybody in Miami is like, bro, why is it raining so hard all the time? You know, like it, 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 I don't know about you, but it seems to me the rain yeah, has you talk about more You talk intense. about these torrential downpours, these sort of like fast cells that just dump rain and it's less consistent than it used to be and much more drastic than it used to be. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And that's a positive feedback loop because as the atmosphere gets warmer, the molecules in the air are further apart and can fit more water. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. Gas expands, it can, it can hold more water, it's gonna rain harder, big deal. Bueno, first of all, your city's drainage systems were not designed to deal with this. So even if you're up on the high ground, right, your area could easily flood because the drainage system in your neighborhood can't deal with seven inches of water in an hour like we got in 2017. But additionally, like this is a big deal for, you know, even massive pieces of infrastructure. If you look at what's happening right now in central China with the Three Gorges Dam, which is the largest single piece of engineering ever constructed by humans. Like you can see this thing from space. My grandfather, who was an engineer and a dam builder, made a pilgrimage to this thing in 1993. It was like his mecca. Uh, the Three Gorges Dam right now is suffering from super stress because there's so much rain that has fallen so suddenly in central China that the planners had never thought of that possibility because right. of climate change. And so now they're having to literally flood towns downstream because they can't hold back all the water. So you talk to a lot of people in this book about these kind of um, the, these feedback loops and also about like what our expectations can be in the century to come. Uh, and among them, you talk to a lot of elected officials, municipal leaders, and uh, this sort of new job in the last 10 years, the re chief resiliency officer. And mm. I always feel like when, when, when you talk to people like that, and as, as a journalist myself, I always thought that there's this context that they have a vested interest in sort of maintaining a tax base. I think of Dan Gelber, who's the mayor of Miami Beach. Mm -hmm. He was, um, if he was being truly responsible and diligent as a public servant, there's, there's, a, there's a thought that is, he'd be up there yelling at the top of his lungs for residents and businesses to retreat from Miami Beach because that would be kind of like the responsible thing to do. But then he'd be out of a job because there would be no more Miami Beach. So how do you sort of balance your conversations that you had with a lot of these folks? Do you take them with a grain of salt? And, 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 and how do you think about that when you're you know, dealing with these municipal leaders who uh, may, be, it may be in their interest to be a little more Pollyanna-ish about a lot of this stuff? Yeah, no, listen, man, that, that, that's, that's sort of the rub when talking to a lot of the elected officials in Miami and also when talking to many of the public servants in Miami. But I, I would say on the whole, right, the people who I encountered in Miami's and, and in Miami-Dade's bureaucracy, right, they went out of their way to educate me on this issue and they went on their way to make their sources available on this issue. And I, I have a lot of respect for them as public servants. And I, I recognize the incredibly difficult situation that they're in because they're, they're caught between this rock and hard place, right? Yeah. Like if you're the chief resilience officer of a city, um, you know, 
you may in your heart know that there are things that you need to do that your elected leadership has no interest doing. And you have to drag them kicking and screaming into the future, right? Um, However, yeah, that elected leadership needs to have a come to Jesus moment in some cases. Um, Let's just put it this way. The municipal corporations, right? Because they're corporations, they're bodies. They're different from private corporations, but they're fictional legal bodies in the eyes of the law that we have down here in Florida are growth machines. Okay, They are designed to grow their tax base and to generate wealth and deliver services. Okay, But the issue is that we're in a situation where we have very probably grown to the limits of our ecosystem's carrying capacity. Right, like We're not necessarily going to be able to have the same resources that we did here this year in 10 years down the line because there's going to be more water there's going to be less tax races right. uh th- there's there's just things are going to be rougher right and so even though the responsible thing is for us to get together and to think about okay gee at two feet of sea level rise uh 60, people get physically displaced here in miami who are those people how can we ensure that there is a just transition from where they're currently at to somewhere else how can we make sure that they're you know uh, wealth and livelihood is destroy- isn't destroyed or, or that, that we return their land that they've currently developed into you know some state of nature that is resembling what it originally was. We're not having that conversation. What we're having is a conversation about putting the pump where, raising the road here, right. uh, hardening this building to this point. And at some level, yeah, man, that's cool. But, you know, and, and I can understand why you want to do that because it secures your tax base. But this town needs to have a real conversation about retreat and we need to open the space for that conversation and municipal leaders and some of them are willing to talk about retreat um others you know they don't want to face it uh if you listen to um the mayor of miami right his deal is miami forever and even though throughout the book i outline the very narrow path that could lead to miami's survival right let me let me break it down her folks the, the the betting man would not put money on this city surviving yeah except maybe you know? it's a cloud city or something like it. yeah <laughs> like exactly it's a sort right? of futuristic you know? you know alderaan situation i mean okay. it, you 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 kind of spend a lot of time in the book that i really appreciated on on that schism like between like what's best for miami and what the corporate class thinks is best for miami and you have an entire section called the long con against the rising tide. Uh, Jeff Goodell is a friend of the show, did a good job on this book back in um, 20, on, on, this, oh, this, on his yeah. book, uh, The Water Will Come, reporting on sort of how commercial interests have, have used government public sentiment to keep kicking the can down the road. But things, even just from a few years ago, things are different now. And I, I think that you were able to, your credit, to bring a lot more of a sort of local knowledge and understanding as a local, as somebody who's from here, your parents work in real estate and, right. and you call that industry in South Florida, quote, a, a grand delusion. So how did how did you reconcile these sort of more pro-business, pro-development narratives that I think are pretty blinkered in, in the you know cold heart light of reality um, with the truth of, of what scientists and what experts were telling you? Because that is, I think, kind of the core tension there between yeah. uh, Miami forever and like, okay, well, let's 
have a real conversation about what Miami forever means. And maybe it's just picking everything off uh, up and dropping it in, you know, Northern Georgia because it might not survive. I mean, like how, how right. did you reconcile those two things? So I, so it, personally I, I reconcile that towards the end of the book by talking about the opportunities inherent, the business opportunities inherent in learning to adapt. Right. And, and, and here not to be like, the guy talking about the Dutch, but I'll be the guy talking about the Dutch briefly, right? The Dutch get 2% of their entire GDP from teaching other people how not to drown because they figured out how not to drown, right? Mm -hmm. We here in Miami are going to have to figure out how not to drown. And we're probably not going to have really nice beaches after we figure out how not to drown. It might behoove us to figure out how to sell that knowledge of not drowning to other people who are in danger of drowning, right? However, at the moment, the core fundamental tension in Miami is between a political class that delivers policy outcomes for a group of business elite who are not necessarily incentivized to think about the long-term outcomes of their decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And so what do I mean by that? Because it's pretty abstract. Um, here in Miami, if you're a politician, it is very attractive to develop stuff and to let development happen, okay? Uh, you get an extra tax benefit whenever a new development comes online. Yeah. You increase your tax base, right? And that creates a, surprise, surprise, positive feedback loop between, you know, politicians and those who really move a lot of money down here, Miami's development class. Yeah. Now, you can educate the developers on what's going to happen here. And a lot of them do understand very clearly what's going to happen here. And some of them to their credit, are trying to create solutions. But the problem is that their single transactions, their discrete transactions, they're not made to account for those externalities, right? And, and they're, they're, by... you know, they're smart money. And you talk oh, to yeah. some of these people in the book, like you, there's yeah. one person towards the front of the book where they mention, uh, in a again a really cynical way I, I just hope there's a you know five or six more good business cycles left in this place Dude, before it goes up that's where i got the title of the book from that conversation yeah. um you know because he i felt like he was treating my city like a piece of single-use plastic yeah. um and like i hope i get to have a follow-up conversation with that guy at some point but like yeah there are people who are being really cynical about this and there are people who aren't right and like later tonight uh when i talk on 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 on, on the webcast with books and books, I'm going to talk to some with some folks from the from the development community who aren't being cynical about it. Mm -hmm. But the development community doesn't have the incentives right now to act responsibly in the whole, right? Because they sell their development afterwards, right? The condominium building isn't owned by the developer afterwards. It's owned by the condominium association. So they're not holding on to the risk. Who's holding on to the risk? You and me, David, right? And so at the end of the day, it is up to the citizens of this particular area to make sure that their political classes understand that even though their donor base wants one thing, right, the continued existence of their city requires another. Does that make sense? Yeah, I want to. I want to turn uh, a little bit towards something a little bit practical, real. The infrastructure. Uh, a lot of the research that you did around seawalls and pumps and things like that during during the course of the book and you visited a, a the this huge industrial like cistern and sump pump down near brickle 
city center, which for our non-Miami listeners is kind of like the trendy downtown, the trendy part of downtown. And we keep hearing about these solutions and, and mitigations and modern inventions that are hopefully supposed to save us one day and, and, and make Miami or keep Miami inhabitable. I'm wondering, after looking at that infrastructure in, in the cold light of day, where a lot of us just hear about it theoretically, can you give an assessment? Like, is this stuff going to work? Can we spend our way out of this problem by no. building these things? You can't. There's not enough money to go around, yeah. right? Uh, there's a professor from 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 Harvard. He's at Tulane now, but he's he's one of these guys who like speaks in paragraphs. Have you ever met those people who like speak in beautiful sentences, right? Yeah. Jesse Keenan <laughs> speaks in paragraphs, right? And you're like, dude, you sound like you're from the 18th century. It's lovely. Um, Jesse just very clearly pointed out, like you can do a back of the napkin equation. There isn't enough of a tax base here to pay for all of the physical hardening of adaptation that would need to happen in order to just get us to two to three feet of sea level rise. Yeah. Forget four, right? And I, I, I make that distinction between two to three and four because there's a, a, a point of no return at, at between three and four feet where about 200,000 people get physically displaced here in Miami. Yeah, and it's not a question anymore at that point. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's just like, okay, welcome, subtropical Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the infrastructure question here is, is a fascinating one because there is an incentive for politicians and engineers and municipal organizations to build hard concrete adaptations, right? And say, hey, look, we're doing something. And I, I think what, what Miamians need to understand and what South Floridians need to understand is that those adaptations aren't enough because climate change is a bigger problem than just the water, right? Yeah. It's the heat, it's the hard rain, and it's the fact that that's going to destroy your tax base, right? So you won't have enough money to build your way out of this. Um, right now, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is proposing, and, and the comment period is open until August 19th, I believe, a $4.6 billion intervention into South Florida, right? It's called the Back Bay Study. And the point is that they're going to make Miami more able to withstand the big one. The big one is the hurricane that like barrels down the city center, knocks out the airport, knocks out the seaport, knocks out the Brickell Business District. You know, basically it's it's like the one punch KO. The the topography altering storm that everybody always theoretically worries about now. If or if 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 uh, oh god, what was the one from last year that that destroyed the the Bahamas? Um, but, uh, Matthew? Well, no, that was like years no, ago. No, that was twenty sixteen. Um, uh, they tear they tear right through. You always. I know, I know. <laughs> well, if that storm had turned right and right. had like kind of gone inland, that would have been as a category five. You know, like what happens with that one? And in Miami. The big deal here is that if you get a big storm with a big storm surge going up the Miami River, you're talking about trillions of dollars of property damage, right? It's like the city has a soft underbelly and that's the way to get into it. Uh So the Army Corps wants to build these giant flood walls. And I'm talking like 13 feet tall, six feet wide, down like lanes of the city, right? Like on edge water. They want to build one in the middle of Biscayne Bay right in front of Brickell. Like, yeah, and, and and the the jury the jury's still out on the effectiveness of those. I know that Venice has had uh-huh. has had a lot of well success at first, and then a lot of problems trying to yes. institute these enormous monstrous hunks of cement. Right, 
Exactly. And that's one adaptation for one threat because that doesn't stop the water coming up from underground, right? right? So that's 4.6 billion for that adaptation. <laughs> then you need to talk about the gravity gates and the drainage infrastructure of the city, right? Because Miami, like Venice, is drained by a bunch of canals. And those canals themselves, there are these gates at their end, and we move all of the water that would you know, drown this place out via those gates. Those gates rely on gravity. And as you have the water on one side of the gate meeting the level of the water on the other side because the ocean is rising, you lose your ability to drain the city. And so there are 40 of these gates. It's gonna cost $7 billion, give or take, to replace them. You need to replace them in the next 10 to 15 years. So we're already talking between, you know, you're talking $11 billion just to keep the city drained and keep it from a big hurricane hitting it. And, and you're talking about, for context to people who haven't lived here as long, or maybe they aren't from here, this is a municipality or, or a place, a, a county really, where we couldn't even scrape together the $400 million that we needed to extend our rail without it just getting pilfered over the course of 10 years and disappearing <laughs> into the, into, into the ether. And, and you're, I mean, like it's, it's, it's really like asking a toddler to, to drive a rally course at like expecting Miami <laughs> to be able to do these things. It's insane. I, I just, yeah. I, 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 I hear it constantly. Right. And I'm sure you hear it too. People say, and especially people here in Miami and probably people that your family know, you know, Miami, there's too much money here. They're going to figure it out. They'll mm -hmm. figure it out. Like it's some mm -hmm. imaginary they, they will figure it out. And I mean, there's so many things that they haven't figured out. It really doesn't give me a lot of faith. I imagine you have even less faith after reporting on this book. I, I mean, like the whole point of the book is, is to get people from, oh, they'll figure it out to, oh shit, we got to figure it out. Yeah. You know, cause <laughs> we got to figure it out. Like the whole like, oh, the government isn't going to fix this. Well, guess what, folks? You're the government. This is right. kind of a representative democracy. Like this starts getting fixed by becoming hyperactive in your local government and taking extreme responsibility for the policy outcomes of your constitutional democracy. So I want to talk about sort of the, the, the opposite side of that coin, right? Mm. And like how... I guess people are, there's, there's a movement of people that are, and you have, again, very representatively, you have this individual, you know, uh, spoken for in your book, people are getting kind of black pilled. And you talk about, um, you talk about, I, th I believe it was an associate of your, of your parents that you met with, who was, mm. or a client of theirs, mm. who you called the count and who's like a rich <laughs> foreign businessman who has uh, yeah. He's kind of seen the light and he started liquidating his Miami real estate holdings and he's he's becoming in your words a prepper and uh, and um he tells you oh you know we're fucked the whole world is fucked and I'm I'm wondering how much of that you've encountered and broadly if there were other in your any other interviews like that that shocked you or surprised you and if you're sort of as infuriated for that class of people to be waving their hands in the air and saying, ah, we're fucked, I'm pulling my money. Because back to the thing I said before, people always say, oh, there's money in Miami, but money has legs and money can just leave. Oh yeah, money has you know? wings, man. Yeah. yeah, like capital moves easier than people. Right. Um, you know, part of the reason why Miami exists is because capital moves easier than people. Like we're a place to store your capital if you are, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. Don't want to pay Maduro his tax. Um, <laughs> But yeah, okay, so uh, a couple of things about the Count. Um, I had to keep the Count's name out of it 
Um, and so I have to be a little vague about exactly who he is. Uh, my parents never took him on as a client, thank God. Okay. Um, but yeah, he was looking to sell a large portion of his portfolio in Miami to, I, I think if I'm remembering accurately, uh, to sort of fund uh, acquisition of land down in Ushuaia in Argentina, where he was going to be climate secure. Um, the end of the world, and, Ushuaia. Right, exactly. Literally like the southernmost city yeah. on the planet. Beautiful place, by the way. Um, and the crazy thing to me is, and hopefully this won't identify him, and I don't remember if I put this in the book or not, <laughs> um, he got his money, right, his generational wealth from belonging to a fortune uh, created by a group of people who extruded a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, right? Let's just say if you pick a certain 19th century Central European power and you look at their major steel industry, he is his descendant of the owners of that major steel industry, which drove war machines, which may or may not have invaded other Central European well, powers. Well, look, Mario, well, you're, well, you, you, in business, that's what we like to call vertical integration. Okay, <laughs> over the course of some generations, it's it's a very normal thing. It's great for the planet. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, but he 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 was specifically really stood out because, um, you know, we've really only been pumping. A lot of carbon into the atmosphere for for you know about 150 to 200 years, right? So if if you look at the course of generational wealth, the people who accumulated this wealth, you know some of them are prepping, and and there's been great reporting on that done in the New Yorker. Um, but yeah, let's just say that there, there's there's a lot of instances in my life where I've seen the sausage getting made um, that I can't necessarily report on, uh, and and and. It's every bit as ugly as you think it would be. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up that timeline because I think that there's some symmetry to that timeline from like when you know the 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 apex of the industrial revolution when we started pulling all of the carbon out and putting it into the air, and also you know the founding of Miami in 1910 as a as a right. city. And um, always remember that like this is such a quirky city, such a quirky place that. This, the, the, the Miami Herald itself is one of the few newspapers that ever covered the founding of its own city. And yeah, and, and we haven't been around that long. Like if your house is from the 20s or 30s, it's ancient here. And we might not, we probably will not be around that long. And it seems like there is, I'm wondering if that struck you, if there was like a symmetry between you know, industrialization and just the existence of Miami at, at yeah, all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I remember having this eureka moment when I was researching uh, Flagler and I found out where Flagler got his money, you know? Mm. And, like, Flagler was, like, the Bezos of today, right? Yeah, or maybe sure. maybe not the Bezos. He was more like a, a, a Peter Thiel more, kind of I guy. would say he's almost more of an Elon Musk. Yeah, like, he's yeah, kind of like Elon Musk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and, very and he got to build his hyper exactly. you know? yeah. Right. They're super bombastic. And 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 Flagler built his hyperloop, right? And his hyperloop was the Florida East Coast Railway. And how did he fund that? Well, he funded it from venture capital that he had literally extracted from the ground because he had been one of the early investors in Standard Oil. Right. Right. And you're like, well, what what's Standard Oil? Standard Oil was the first Exxon. Standard Oil was the first BP. Standard Oil was the first big oil company, and it's the one that managed to capitalize and get people to shift from burning coal 
to burning petroleum, mm. right? So if you can imagine how much money people got out of that. And then what did Flagler do with that money? Well, he sunk it into a railroad that came down all the way to Miami and all the way down to the Keys. And so in, in a very real and concrete way, if you trace the history of the capital, of the fossil capital, right, to, to quote the phrase in the book, uh, that creates Miami. And somebody else wrote a book called Fossil Capital that people should read, even though it's kind of dense. Uh, it is the history of fossil fuels and industrialization creating a city which will then be ironically destroyed by the greenhouse gases emitted by that very industrialization, if it isn't careful. This this city, it became what it is, and I, you really kind of have to live here to understand the kind of flavor profile of this city. And it's a very weird, mutated version of sort of American exceptionalism that's also very endearing and that, you know, if you've been here a while, you love it, but it's also infuriating. Any kind of American city could have cropped up here with any kind of like social or political profile. But the one that we have is maybe the worst possible recipe to deal with this emergency. <laughs> it's like this collection of, of like brand experts and like scam artists and catchphrases. Oh it is uh, such a shady place. It's, it's like, it's an embodiment of, you use the word neoliberalism in your book. And I mean, I, I love that word. Like Miami is hyper-normalized neoliberalism. It's oh like, yeah management of appearance it's aesthetics it's the kind of place where you mm -hmm. you pay five times as much to your pr shop to sell something as you would pay to like your r d team to build Develop. something oh, so yeah, totally. do you see miami not not the place but the people as comprised of the people that are here as like uniquely unprepared to deal with this emergency where like branding and slick communications and beautiful photography and packaging it's not going to help fix this problem that much no, i mean i'm wondering not. what what you think about like miami's identity uh in in you know in relief of you know of this of this problem david i'll put it in really personal terms when i grew up here i hated this place right i from like six years old to 18 years old i wanted nothing but to get out of dodge i thought there's no culture here everybody's into their boat or you know right. their mansion or their supercar and I want to go to some place where people talk about books and they're nerdy and they value, you know, doing fun, interesting, quirky stuff. And, and people care about who you are and what's in your brain and not what you look like. And so I left and I left for a decade. And during that decade, Miami changed a little bit, right? An art scene popped up. Interesting people moved in. Um, and a lot of the kids that grew up here in my generation turned out to be really interesting people. Some of them are jerks, but a lot of them turned out to be really interesting folks. Uh, and so I came back and I, I fell in love with the transformation that Miami had undergone, right? I found my place. Not only the place where I fit in culturally because of the weird concatenation of individuals that are here, but also you know a place that has an art scene, has a cultural scene, has intelligent people where you can make an impact. And I found that really worth fighting for. And I think that if in those 10 years Miami can transform in the way that it did, even in the midst of the Great Recession, I, I do think that there is enough dynamism here for there to be a, a transformation of the political and civic culture to the point where we responsibly manage our relationship with our environment and the water that is going to come. And, and, and that is in part why I wrote the book. Because like as shady as the people here are, 
and they are shady. I cover the fraud. You cover the fraud, right? Uh, I, I think that there is another group of folks who do really care and who are really concerned. Yeah, I'm reminded of like I, whenever I think of that aspect of Miami, um, I'm reminded of one of my favorite movies that we've talked about on the show before, uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco last year. There's, yeah. a, there's a scene where uh, the main character is riding the, the subway, or not the subway, but the, uh, the bus with um, a couple of sort of gentrifying white girls. And mm-hmm. he's just, and they're talking shit about San Francisco. And he says, do you love it? And they say, what do you mean? And he says, well, do you love it? Because you don't get to hate it unless you love it. And I kind of feel the exactly. same way about Miami. Like you don't get yes. to hate Miami unless you love it. And, yes. uh, but for the purposes of this interview, I skipped ahead to the end of the book cool. and you kind of, you finish with this sort of imagined narrative about a young Miami airboat captain who runs a disaster tourism business in Miami <laughs> in the year 2100. So um, tell us about that vision. I want to preface by saying like, this is a, 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 a no hate for Hialeah podcast. We, we, people love to shit on Hialeah, but we love yeah, Hialeah. No, here, I love but Hialeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's funny because that's sort of, I think the setting of the scene that you, that you, that you set uh, yeah. it's a now sort of submerged Hialeah. Talk us through that vision that, that you um, end the book with. Sure. Um, and I, I guess I'll begin this by saying that ending books is really hard, right? <laughs> yeah. Like finding a good ending to a book is tough. And I tried my best to land this one, and I think I did an okay job. Uh, but the next time, like I wrote this book in a year. Like the research took three years, the writing was a year. Next time I want to take a couple years to write a book. Um, but listen, I, I felt it was really important, David, to leave people with a vision of what an outcome of fighting for this place might look like, okay? And and it's why I think science fiction is informative, right? Because like, even if Miami does everything right, everybody else has to do everything right. And that sounds really vague and, and, and abstract. So what does it look like if we win? Like, I, I think we really have to show people what could be a future here and that there is a future here. And it involves sharing the high ground between all races and classes and living in dense transit connected environments that, you know, are in tune with the nature around them and figure out how to generate their own electricity and clean their own water. Right. And it's going to be a, a really serious question about how we return as much of the land as possible to its original state as we abandon it. Um, and so so I, I wrote this scene and I wrote this fiction and in part because like I write nonfiction and I write journalism and I'm a frustrated fiction writer and I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna slip a little bit in there. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so that's that's why I, I ended on that note because like the through line of the book is that there's, there's a narrow golden path to saving Miami and it's narrow. Like I'm not gonna kid people about that. This this isn't this isn't a silver lining to a cloud. Like it is gonna be really tough to save the city. But there is a path, you know, and there's a city on the hill at the end of it. Literally, it's like a like a seventeen foot hill. Yeah. Are you worried? Uh are you worried that one of the lowest of the low lying areas inland is Sweetwater and um, you know, the surrounding areas of Sweetwater, and I'm wondering if you're concerned that uh Belen Jesuit might end up going under. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm that pi- really the, concerned. Pi- the pipeline to the Ivy Leagues that Miami Oh my God. Miami um, has. <laughs> and there's a reason why like I made it a point to like in 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 the penultimate chapter to go talk to Father Willie, the head of Belen. 
mm-hmm. about this, about you know displacement and dislocation. Because listen, the Cubans are the expert in diaspora, right? Like they they've been dislocated before. And I, I went and I sat down and I asked them, Father Willie, how would you feel if you had to leave your home again? If you had to rebuild Belen someplace else? Because that's the possibility that's staring you in the face. And you know, to his credit, he goes, "That would suck." <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, um, they, Bill yes. uh, and Jesuit, it bears mentioning is, uh, I think, graduated one head of state who was Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you should know that. Although I yes, don't think there absolutely. are very many. I don't think there are probably any uh, pictures hanging up on campus over in. No, uh, in but there's a wall of martyrs of everybody who died fighting him. Yeah, exactly. so, <laughs> that, that makes know, more sense. If, if that gives um, you an idea of the political inclinations. There. <laughs> so the book is Disposable City. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound. There'll be a link in the show description. So just click on that too. You can fo- follow Mario Arisa on Twitter at In A Minor Key. Mario, thanks for stopping by Bird Road. David, absolute pleasure. I wish you the best. And maybe when this is all over, we can grab a beer. Please, definitely. Let, let this be over <laughs> <laughs> No, right.